Hi, I'm David Naiman, the host of the radio show and podcast Between the Covers. People are often surprised to learn that this is not my day job, that I don't get paid. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm not here to ask you for an income. Up until now, hosting the podcast has involved only nominal fees, but the podcast has seen explosive growth this year. Listenership has quadrupled in less than 10 months. And these once nominal fees have grown to many hundreds of dollars, which could easily become thousands next year and which I'm paying myself. So I'm here today talking to you in the hope of creating a sustainable model for me to nurture the podcast success. If you value these interviews, whether with great fiction writers such as George Saunders, Laurie Moore, or Juno Diaz, science fiction icons Ursula K. Le Guin, William Gibson, and Neil Stevenson, or genre-bending essayists and poets such as Claudia Rankine, Maggie Nelson, and Mary Rufel, I hope you'll become a patron of Between the Covers. Your per-episode contribution would be your way to participate in the show's long-term health. Please take a moment and either go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash between the covers or to david com slash support and give your support and enjoy today's program between the covers is brought to you in part through the support of propeller a magazine of books music art film and life and its publishing imprint propeller books visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Leila Lalami, is an acclaimed writer whose work is noteworthy for how it engages history and yet also remains timely resonating against the pressing issues of the day. Her first novel, Hope and Other Dangerous Pursuits, was a finalist for the Oregon Book Award and portrays the story of Moroccan immigrants on an inflatable boat in the Straits of Gibraltar trying to make it to Spain. Her second novel, Secret Sun, a book that was on the Orange Prize's long list, explores issues of class, identity, and religious fundamentalism on the streets of Casablanca, Morocco. Not surprisingly, Leila Lalami is sought after for her thoughts and insights about current political events. She writes regularly for The Nation and The New York Times, where she comments upon and analyzes everything from the war on terror, Islamophobia, immigration, and the ethics of torture, to Black Lives Matter, Ferguson, and Charlie Hebdo. Leila Lalami is here today to discuss her third and latest book, The Moore's Account. The Moore's Account was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, a New York Times Editor's Choice, a Best Book of the Year for the Wall Street Journal, NPR, and Kirkus. 
It was on the Man Booker Prize long list and was both an American Book Award and Arab American Book Award winner. The Moore's account tells the tale of the first black explorer of America, a Moroccan slave whose testimony was left out of the official record. Salman Rushdie says the encounters between the Spanish conquistadors and Native Americans is a frightening, brutal, and much falsified history that here in Leila Lalami's hands is rewritten to give us something that is very like the truth. The Los Angeles Times adds that the Moore's account offers a pungent alternative history that muses on the ambiguous power of words to either tell the truth or reshape it according to our desires. And the New York Times Book Review says, the Moore's account feels at once historical and contemporary, and that for Lalami, storytelling is a primal struggle over power between the strong and the weak, between good and evil, and against forgetting. Welcome to Between the Covers, Leila Lalami. Thank you very much for having me. So why don't we start with the origins of how this became a project for you? What, what sparked an interest in, in writing this unspoken tale from a real historical account? Well, some years ago, um, about six or seven years ago, I was reading a book about Moorish Spain, and I came across a very brief mention, no longer than two or three paragraphs, about uh, a Moroccan slave named Estebanico, who was said to be the first black explorer of America. And that just that description stopped me in my tracks. I thought, well, how come I haven't heard about him in any of our history books or in Morocco or in America? Um, and so I decided to find out a bit more about him, which is how I came across Cabeza de Vaca's narrative of the Narvaez expedition. And in that narrative, he basically describes what happened to uh, the Narvaez expedition, which left Spain in, 15, uh, in 1527 and landed uh, on the coast of Florida near what is now Tampa Bay in, in April 1528. And the goal uh, was to claim uh, the Gulf Coast for the Spanish crown. Uh, but within a year, there were only four survivors. Cabeza de Vaca, of course, um, a gentleman named Alonso del Castillo Maldonado, another gentleman named Andres Dorantes, and the Moroccan slave, a man whose name is not known, but whom the other three Spaniards called Estebanico. Together, these men journeyed through North America and lived among indigenous people, sometimes as as uh, guests and sometimes as servants or slaves. Um, and they reinvented themselves as faith healers in order and, and, and actually constructed a pretty elaborate act in order to survive. And then many years later were found and brought to Mexico City where they were asked for their testimony about what happened, all except the slave, whose testimony was never recorded. And as I'm reading this book, I'm noticing all of the silences around, for example, indigenous people. None of them are mentioned my name except for one chief, no mention of any women whatsoever. Um, Estebanico is sometimes referred to by his name about a handful of times. The rest of the time he's referred to as the slave or the Negro. Um, and so these silences intrigued me. And I thought, and on top of that, the fact that Estebanico's testimony was erased from the historical record, like it was never recorded. And there was something about that that felt very modern to me. Um, erasure is something that is ongoing. It isn't something that is restricted to the 16th century. And so I thought, huh, wouldn't it be interesting to tell this story from the point of view of the one member of the expedition or from the point of view of the one survivor whose testimony was never recorded, and that's how the idea for the book was born. 
Well, right away as a reader, you notice the erasures. When you think to all of the references you have of these expeditions, paintings or other books, you often imagine, I think a lot of people often imagine that these boats are just full of white men. Mm -hmm. We don't think that there's actually slaves, people of color, Mm -hmm. women, Mm -hmm. settlers who Mm -hmm. are supposed to set up towns. Mm -hmm. Um, Was that a surprise to you when you were reading the Cabeza de Vaca tale, or did you already have some inkling of that prior to to reading this? You know, to be perfectly honest, it wasn't something that I had given that much thought to. Uh, Spanish exploration of the Americas hadn't been a topic that had intrigued me as an academically or personally. It really began with this book. And then I realized how much I had bought into the myth that these um, expeditions were uh, were peopled by white men. And then as I began to read not just Cabeza de Vaca's book, but other sources of the, of the era, uh, particularly this book called, which I highly recommend, called The Conquest of New Spain, I started to realize how much more complicated the story was, that in fact, yes, there were women, um, and they, there were women uh, in that Narvaez expedition. They were left behind once the men decided to journey inland to look for gold. But there were women, there were children, there were settlers. They were people who spoke different European languages. They were people from different parts of Africa. And together, all of these people were part of this expedition. And And... In a way, that's what, you know, we like to think of the world right now as being this sort of, you know, we talk about the era of globalization as being an era in which people are moving across borders much more easily than before. But really, even back then, um, these things were happening and, and it's just that the history doesn't necessarily reflect it. One of the ways you really wonderfully capture the sense of not seen by the Nares uh, expedition is when he lands and he gives his speech declaring the land for the king of Spain. And there really isn't an audience, but it doesn't really matter to him that mm-hmm. there's no audience. It's just that it matters to him that he's declaring it out loud as right. a sort of ritual to himself. Right. I mean, so so this scene that you describe is when the the expedition actually lands in Florida and the and the Florida is then claimed formally for the Spanish crown by the reading of a document called De Requerimiento. And I remember when I came across it, I thought this is unreal. It's just unreal that such a document was drafted and that its purpose was to inform the natives that they were now subjects of his holy imperial majesty and that any attempts at resistance would be met with violence. And not only that, but it would be their faults if, if if any deaths occurred. And if they resisted, they would be enslaved. The purpose of that document, of course, is not for the natives to understand it. They don't speak Latin (laughs) or even Castilian Spanish. Um, The purpose is to protect these conquerors from any um, uh, claims that what they are doing is wrong, whether legally or morally, because it's a document that sort of mixes both uh, legality and religion. Um, And it's just such a fascinating document. And, And so when I came across it, I thought, I have to put this um, in the novel. And it's a way, again, it feels very much like a modern document. If you look at the torture memos that were drafted uh, during the George W. Bush administration, their purpose was to protect Americans from any claim that what they were doing was actually immoral, that it was torture. You know, all of these contortions around language are meant to protect uh, the people that are unleashing this violence on, on others. So, so tell us, Leila, how um, when you decide to start 
retelling this tale from a different perspective. What is your process? How do you go about finding sources or where did you feel like you found particularly useful information to flesh out the character and and make him dimensional and have him come alive on the page, both his voice, but also trying to get the period correct, both yeah, in Morocco yeah. and in the United States. Yeah, I mean, it really was such a challenge when I decided to write this book because I, I thought, you know, I don't know that much about Spanish exploration and, and even about the history of, of uh, you know, 16th century Americas and very little indeed even about 16th century Morocco. So it was a huge challenge. Um, one of the... One of the interesting aspects about writing history is that writing fiction out of history is that it comes with a set of constraints, and the constraints are the following. I knew that the expedition had to leave Spain on a particular date, that it had to include these main characters or these main, you know, people, um, this many horses, this many women and children, that it landed in Florida at a specific date, and so on and so forth. So in a way, you have a plot, and that plot is the looking for gold, is the journey of exploration. On the other hand, we know so little about who these people were as human beings. We know that they were driven by greed, obviously, because they came to Florida to look for gold. Um, but everything else can be invented. So, for example, with my main character, I knew that he was an Arabic-speaking black man and a native of Azmoor, which is a small town 60 miles south of Casablanca on the Atlantic coast in Morocco. And that those facts come to us from Cabeza de Vaca, but nothing else. But then working back, I thought, okay, well, he can't very well be a very old man because conquest is a young person's game. And the value of bringing, for Dorantes, the value of bringing a slave was that he would be able to help. So it had to be a fairly young, you know, man. Um, I knew that he must have spoken a number of languages, Spanish, obviously, to his master. But since he is from... Um, Azamor, which is a Portuguese town, he had to have spoken, uh, uh, not a Portuguese town, but Azamor a, a was under Portuguese vassalage. So Portuguese was the language of trade. So he had to speak Portuguese. Um, and it's also a Berber town. He had to be a native speaker of Tamazight. And if he had any kind of education at all, then he would have gone to school and learned Arabic. So all of these things started kind of coming out just sort of by deduction. Um, and then everything else was the work of the imagination, was creating him the way that I would create any other character. I knew he had to also have an impulse uh, in him that, that's, that worked with this expedition to make the narrative interesting. I wanted him to be complicated. I didn't want him to be a victim all the time, which is why, as part of his background, you find out that he once traded in slaves, even though he himself eventually becomes a slave. So all of these things, were that was all invention. Um, but I stayed true to all of the known facts about the expedition. And where I um, diverged from it was where I was given an opportunity to fill silences. So, for example, when Cabeza de Vaca tells us that he went from village to village and had been led there by Indians he had captured, obviously there had been coercion. He didn't ask nicely. And they said, yes, thank you. We will take you to the next village. That's not how it worked out. Obviously, um, they had used coercion. So it's an opportunity to sort of talk about, to say the unsayable to talk about this torture in very plain terms and by using this character who is neither a conqueror nor a conquered, but he's sort of the slave who's standing behind that, that conqueror and kind of observing the scene from a distance. Um, and so it's a very privileged perspective, really, because he's not, he's not in a position where he can take sides with either one of, of the Spaniards or indigenous people. Mm. 
I really like how the LA, LA Times described the book as an exploration of the ambiguous power of words to mm-hmm. either tell the truth or reshape it according to our own desires. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the Moore's account is a postmodern metafictional book, but it does share the concern or the skepticism around narration, I think, mm-hmm. with po- some postmodern novels. <laughs> and I really love how the book opens in that regard because we have the three historical accounts of this event. And then we have your imagined account Mm -hmm. by the the black Moroccan slave. And he insists at the very beginning that what he's telling us is the true account. It's a corrective. Mm -hmm. Um, He may get some minor details wrong because of memory, but in all of the real ways, this is what happened. And yet we as a reader know that all narratives are limited. And so we enter the book in this really, I think, productive and rich place of Mm -hmm. hearing a a passionate tale that hasn't been told. And yet the reader might pause that, that this is, of course, even if it is a crucially omitted narrative, it's still only one narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And and anytime that you have a narrative that is uh, presented as a confessional narrative, like this is a a voice that um, sounds confessional at times, but insists so frequently uh, on telling the truth or on saying that what the story, what this story is, is the truth. It is a way of calling uh, the reader to pay attention to what is being told. It is, of course, not the truth. It is Estebanico's version of these events. And what you may think of as the truth is really Cabeza de Vaca's version of these events. So you're right that it is a book that is about um, narrative and the power of narrative, whether to... um, control sort of um, uh, events uh, or to just describe them. So, Would you be willing to read that opening section for us? Oh, sure, sure. Because I have written this narrative long after the events I recount took place, I have had to rely entirely on my memory. It is possible, therefore, that the distances I cite might be confused or that the dates I give might be inexact, but these are minor errors that are to be expected from such a relation. In all other ways, I testify here that I have described these events as I have witnessed them, including those that, by virtue of their rarity, may seem to the reader to be untrue. I intend to correct details of the history that was compiled by my companions, the three Castilian gentlemen known by the names of Andres Dorantes de Carranza, Alonso del Castillo Maldonado, and especially Alvan Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, who delivered their testimony, what they called the Joint Report, to the Audiencia of Santo Domingo. The first was my legal master, the second my fellow captive, and the third my rival storyteller. But unlike them, I was never called upon to testify to the Spanish viceroy about our journey among the Indians. I consider the three Castilian gentlemen I have mentioned to be men of good character, but it is my belief that under the pressure of the bishop, the viceroy, and the marquis of the valley, and in accordance with the standards set by their positions, they were led to emit certain events while exaggerating others, and to suppress some details while inventing others, whereas I, who am neither beholden to Castilian men of power, nor bound by the rules of a society to which I do not belong, feel free to recount the true story of what happened to my companions and me. What each of us wants in the end, whether he is black or white, master or slave, rich or poor, man or woman, is to be remembered after his death. I am no different. I want to survive the eternity eternity of darkness that awaits me. 
if, by a stroke of luck, this account should find its way to a suitable secretary, who would see fit to copy it down without any embellishments, save for those of calligraphy, or in the manner of the Turks and the Persians, colorful illumination, then perhaps, some day, if that is to be the will of God, my countrymen will hear about my wondrous adventures and take from them what wise men should, truth in the guise of entertainment. You've been listening to Leila Lalami read from The Moor's Account. Uh, we've talked about erasures and, uh, and omissions, and here um, our narrator is suggesting there's also some exaggerations and some falsifications. Are there places that we think of in history now that those three official accounts are uh, falsifying intentionally or where they contradict each other and, and there is no sense of consensus around what happened? I mean, it's it really is interesting to me that the story of the Narvaez expedition is uh, considered to be accepted history when all we have is uh, Cabeza de Vaca's narrative of it, uh, a narrative that was written uh, for and dedicated to the king. I can't imagine a stronger agenda than writing a book uh, for the ruler of the country while at the same time petitioning that ruler for a license to govern Argentina, which is what Cabeza de Vaca was engaged in at the time that this book was published, uh, that his uh, book was published. So it's undeniable to me that he has that agenda, and yet that the narrative of these events, that's who we take to be accepted history. In that narrative, Narvaez comes across as a terrible, terrible uh, leader who made all kinds of terrible decisions. Um, but Narvaez wasn't around to defend himself. He died, you know, in the middle of that expedition. So we don't really know, you know, whether all of these terrible decisions were solely his fault or if, if there had been um, other factors. So and this to me is what's interesting, that history we are taught is a set of facts but it is more than that. History is a story, and story is malleable. And yes, you may have the same facts, but the story is going to be completely different. And because it is going to be a completely different story, it's going to involve a completely different language. When the story of the Iraq war is written some years from now, will we see words like insurgents or will we see words like freedom fighters? Well, it depends. Is the story being written by the Iraqis or is it being written by the Americans? So this, this um, argument, about uh, history is always an argument between counterclaimants, people who have vastly different views about what happened, even though they shared in the exact same facts. And that argument is fought over in language, what words we use to describe the events, what words we use to describe the people who were involved in these events. That was something that when I started working on the book, I had a vague notion of that, but it was only through the, the sort of rewriting of that history that I really came to apprehend fully how malleable really history was. It wasn't something that I understood quite as well as I did after I finished writing the book. Hmm. Recently, you wrote a, an article for the New York Times called My Life as a Muslim in the Gray Zone. And the gray zone being the area where uh, different faiths co-mingle and coexist. Mm -hmm. And you say in that article that it's no mistake that Muslims were targeted and killed in Paris mm -hmm. alongside Westerners mm -hmm. because ISIS wants to eliminate the gray zone. It wants to eliminate anybody who is co-mingling in this. And I felt like there, that the gray zone haunted the Moore's account, too, and, and particularly the fact that you make mm -hmm. this choice to... Um, include our narrator's childhood in Morocco, because mm -hmm. this is all happening 
not long after the expulsion of of mm -hmm. Muslims and Jews mm -hmm. from Spain. And Definitely. so not shortly before this story, there was a gray zone. And it does feel like um, Spain has a similar at the time or um, agenda in this regard to ISIS mm -hmm. in the sense that... <laughs> in the well, sense at least they, the rulers, I mean, yeah, Isabella and Ferdinand. Yeah, I That mean, they want to eliminate yeah. any commingling, essentially. Yeah. yeah, and that's what the Inquisitor... It, and actually, it's really an interesting point you're making because at the time that uh, Cabeza de Vaca's narrative was published, uh, the Inquisition was still ongoing. Cabeza de Vaca was a married man. He could not very well write in his book that he had any kind of an encounter with any kind of a woman at all, even though he was gone for 10 years, uh, or that would have led to questions about the Inquisition um, uh, from the Inquisitor, but also questions about the sort of faith healing that they that they did with the with indigenous people. Uh, he takes great pains to tell us that all of the healing that they did was through the Virgin Mary, that they that they did the sign of the cross on people and prayed over them, and somehow these people miraculously got better. He's at great pains to show that he is a Christian and a good Christian. Um, did he actually do the sign of the cross? We don't know, but he had to say that. Otherwise, the Inquisitor would be asking whether what they were doing was close to magic. So, so yes, there, there was that gray zone and... and at the time in which the book was published, that gray zone did not exist, and so he had to write in in the context of that, in the context of an absence of gray zone. Hmm. We're talking today to Leila Lalami, the author of The Moore's Account, and you're listening to Between the Covers. Well, you mentioned how in the official accounts, uh, natives are never mentioned by name with a, a few rare exceptions. Mm -hmm. And you also, in the, in the introduction that you read to us from our narrator, he says that some of the things that happened are going to seem so improbable, but they are true. And because as a reader, I haven't read the real accounts, there were so many amazing things that happened in the Moore's account. And I was like, is this something that she made up or is this really true? So I just wanted to, yes. I, I think you've already answered some of it, but just to, just to be sure yeah. out of just this deep curiosity on my part, I mean, the, one of the ways in which you combat erasure it, around natives is that we spend a lot of time in these different with these different tribes and their tribal communities and the distinctive ways in which they're different as they travel Florida, Texas, New Mexico, Mexico. And at the same time, when we're with all of these natives, we find out as the numbers are dwindling that the conquistadors and the and their slaves are sort of helpless. They don't have skills. They um, they are living off of the uh, benevolent charity of these tribes. And then ultimately, a lot of them get frustrated and say, you need to do some work. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're actually servants mm -hmm. in these native communities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is that is that something that really yeah. happened? Yes, it did. I mean, in, in Cabeza de Vaca's narrative, by the way, even though he was working under all of these constraints, he deserves great credit because um, uh, this book is the first uh, narrative we have, first published narrative we have of Spanish exploration in North America. And so it's a very, very, very valuable resource. And he gives us a lot of ethnological detail about uh, uh, indigenous tribes that have now uh, become extinct. And so it's really, it's it's interesting, but we can never forget that it is colored by the attitude of a man who, of course, is writing for the king and a man who is writing from, from the perspective of a conqueror. So that's something to always bear in mind. But he absolutely says that um, they were very helpless and 
constantly lived on the generosity of the of indigenous people and it, there came a point when indigenous people said you need to work for for the food that you're doing perhaps the the emphasis was not as strong in his book as it is in mine on that particular um dynamic between them it was a dynamic that interested me so it takes maybe a bit more space in my book than it does in his uh, but there's a number of other things too that that line in the introduction that talks about rarity of events, for example, cannibalism, is something that Camisa de Vaca does mention. It wouldn't have occurred to me to put cannibalism in right. that book, but I thought, wow, it's so uh, it's so interesting that they come to uh, this new land with these uh, notions about the other, and the other is a savage and is a cannibal and is all the, and then they themselves become cannibals. You couldn't invent that. If I had invented the, if this was fiction and I had invented it, like, well, that's a little too symmetrical there, but that's exactly how it, uh, how it turned out. And I, I, I just thought that was really fascinating. Um, so of course I had to include the cannibalism. Um, other things I, I took some small liberties with. So for example, Dorantes has in my book has a brother named Diego. We do know that he had a relative, um, among uh, members of the expedition, it's not clear whether he was a cousin or a distant relative, but I chose to dis- to make him a brother just because it was much more dramatically interesting if he was um, close to him. Hmm. Well, I, I'll just say that I thought the parts where the natives are thinking of the white people as cannibals and, and yes. all the scenes when they're trying to earnestly potentially help out in the community and just don't have the skills to live up to their their parts were, yeah. were wonderful. Oh, thank you so they much. Were, they were really some of the highlights of the book. Thank I you so much. Um, well, another another thing that feels timely about the, the Moore's account to me is the issue of torture and intelligence gathering. So that's something you write about, about uh, contemporary America. Yes. yes. Um, but it's also something that takes place, I'm assuming, in Cabeza de Vaca's account, and certainly in the Moore's account, um, they're trying to find gold. They, they're having tons of issues around just basic communication based on the variety of languages they're encountering. And so they're getting answers through torture. Mm-hmm. Well, Cabeza de Vaca does not mention torture. He doesn't. No. He says things like, um, you know, we came into the village, we captured four Indians, and they led us to the next village, things like that. So it's very much elided. Um, part of the reason he doesn't mention torture is because, as I said, he was trying to get a license to become governor of Argentina, and there was great concern at that time because of the incredibly horrible treatment of indigenous people in South America. There had be, um, there was new concern that maybe the empire needed to sort of... Um, become better at its treatment of natives. So talking openly about torture was probably ill-advised for somebody who wanted to get a new license. Uh, and so he doesn't mention it. But of course, in, in my book, as I said, I'm interested in writing about or saying sort of the unsayable. So they torture these Indians. And what happens when there's this torture is that the torturer is convinced that through pain, there's going to, you're going to reach the truth, when in fact, through pain, you're going to reach answers. Some may be truthful, some may not be truthful, but they're the answers that you seek. Um, and and that's dangerous. So because the Narvaez is so convinced that there's, that there's more gold, he 
tortures the Indians until they tell him, yes, we do have more of this metal. It, there's more of it in this capital. And he, of course, becomes convinced that there's mines and, and there's vast amounts of gold, but there there, are, there isn't. And it's interesting because even today we use torture to gather that intelligence and to launch wars and to do things like that when the evidence doesn't justify it. So to me, even though I was writing about what was happening between 1528 uh, and 1536, in some sense, I felt like I was writing about the present moment. Mm. Well, and another way that the Moore's account is a corrective of sorts around silenced voices, you, you, we have a silenced Moroccan, silenced Muslim, mm -hmm. a silenced black man, mm -hmm. a silenced slave. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to think about that sort of silence reverberating across the, the 500 years. Many people think of Muslims, for instance, as immigrants that have recently come to the to mm -hmm. United States or to mm -hmm. North America, mm -hmm. and that's actually a, a silence narrative in right. and of itself. Can right. you can you speak to that a little bit? Yes, of course. I mean, that's a very common misconception, and, and it comes and you see it actually quite often if you turn on the television. Any time that you see a Muslim character, you either see a terrorist in a foreign land uh, or sort of a sleeper cell here, and then you. For balance, sometimes you might have an, an FBI agent who's Muslim, but of course is either an immigrant or the child of immigrants, when the reality is that Islam has been part of this nation's history since before it became a nation. Not just my character, Estebanico, but also all of the slaves that were brought to uh, to America during the transatlantic slave trade, as many as 20% of them were uh, Muslims. So their faith was taken away from them because people were forcibly converted um, after they were captured. And that contributed to that erasure and that silencing. Um, but, but they've been around uh, and they've always been a very small community. For all of everything that you hear about Islam in America today, the community is no bigger than three to four million people. So you're talking about 1% uh, of America, and yet Americans are really obsessed <laughs> with the presence of Islam in America. That's why you see all the rhetoric coming out of the GOP this year. Um, but that... Uh, rhetoric really is premised on um, ignorance about the nation's history and the role that Muslims have played in it, uh, not just as slaves, but, but, but throughout its history. I mean, some of the greatest um, narratives we have, for example, of slavery have been written by Muslim slaves. And then you have, for example, um, so many contributions. I, earlier today, I was asked about um, uh, book recommendations, and I was talking about Malcolm X and the autobiography of Malcolm X. So today, it's it's actually interesting because the Muslim community in the United States is the most racially diverse faith community of all faith communities. So uh, there's African American uh, Muslims, uh, Asian, South Asian, uh, white. I mean, so it's just it's it's all across the board, uh, and that diversity, of course, is erased because the only Muslims that you actually do see are Middle Eastern. Muslims, that's because of America's engagement with the Middle East. So people, you know, don't think, oh, you know, this this African-American dude sitting next to me might be a Muslim. People don't think that, you know, this, this they're so focused on thinking about Middle Easterners. Do you have a self-narrative about why you, you have this interest around silenced and erased voices, both in your literature and your journalism? That's interesting. I, I, um, I, I suppose it must come from um from some 
personal experience of it, I imagine, of a feeling that that my story didn't matter or my or my percep- perception or my my words didn't matter. I mean, I certainly grew up in a place where writing, even though I grew up in a house full of books, um, nobody my parents didn't think that writing was any kind of a serious occupation and it was just something, it was a hobby for other people and I had better uh, get on with it and, and train in a usable, in a, in a, in a useful field. Um, so it might come from that, from the idea that writing and, and sort of voicing these concerns is not valuable and so maybe everything has been premised on saying no to that and, huh. and writing about it. Well, when when we look at these four narratives, the one you wrote and the three that are that are part of the official record, and the, and not coincidentally, the only narrative that isn't part of the official record being the African and Muslim one versus mm-hmm. the the Christian and European one, mm-hmm. it also sort of resonates against some of the journalism you do today. For instance, engaging uh, this demand that seems to happen whenever there's a terrorist attack that Muslims speak out against it, right. as if the subtext being why aren't they speaking out right. against it when right. in fact they are right, speaking right. out against it. Right. Right. And and it's so it's it's two things. One is this responsibility that somehow you have that because some other person who happens to share the same faith as you um, has committed some terrible crime and it's your duty to to condemn them. And it's uh, a responsibility that is not put upon uh, Christians whenever, you know, when that guy was blowing up a Planned Parenthood in Colorado three months ago or um, you know, on white men, indeed, whenever there are mass shootings. Um, but the other side of that, too, um, is it puts Muslims in a position where the only time you hear from them is in connection with terrorism and condemning terrorism. Nobody is going to put you on a show about, I don't know, flower arrangements or supernovas or um, cooking or um art or any of that and identify you as Muslim. At that point, you become whatever your name is, expert on this field is going to share with us these thoughts. But anytime, um, any anytime anybody is officially identified as a Muslim in our media, it's usually in connection with a story about terrorism. And so it really helps to reinforce this connection between the two. Hmm. We're talking today to Leila Lalami, the author of The Moore's Account, and you're listening to Between the Covers. Uh, another thing I learned from reading some of your essays was that the satanic verses or the so-called satanic verses in the Quran that um, became notorious with Salman Rushdie's book were also a form of erasure in a way. If we think about the the way that the original originally they were reported by Muhammad, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they were these pre-Islamic goddesses who had, mm-hmm. who had communicated with him, and then he took them out, mm-hmm. and they became sat. They he. he reoriented himself to the information and took it out of the holy book. He took them out of the holy book in the sense that he took them out of the recitations that people were uh, declaiming from the holy book. But in reality, the Quran itself was not collected as a document until long after his death. And Mm. that is something that most people don't know. Um, Also, the Quran has come down to us through the centuries. Uh, Arabic was a language that, uh, that is a language that can be written without vowels and indeed without uh, any kind of diacritics. And so a dot can make a very big semantic difference between two words. Uh, so for, for, for over the centuries, it is a document that 
now you now every copy that you buy is fully vocalized and has all of its diacritics. But for a long time, it was transmitted in manuscript form without all of those diacritics. And so people really had to rely on verbal memory of it. So it is a living document, notwithstanding what, what many people are trying to tell us otherwise. Um, and so, yes, that's just part of that history of, of uh, Quranic tradition. Yeah. Hmm. And you write a lot about the silencing of Muslim women. How is that? How does the issue of gender, if at all, manifest in the Moore's account? I, I know it's mostly male characters in, in the book. So I was curious what what sort of grappling you did with that or not. Well, I mean, that is one of the erasures that you see in Kabi Salibaka's book, as I mentioned, is the fact that no women are, are mentioned at all. So it was very important to me when I wrote the novel that uh, women's voices be included. Now, of course, the main character uh, is a man and exploration is typically taken to be a very male narrative. You cannot, you know, the hero's journey is sort of the prototypical uh, male narrative. So the way I approached it was to look for opportunities to uh, include uh, women characters, obviously beginning with his mother, from whom he learns his love of storytelling, oral storytelling, which is how um, my grandmother, who was illiterate, that was how she told us stories. Um, And then when he is enslaved and lives in Spain, um, he has this friendship with another uh, slave in the same household who also is a woman and who is looking for her daughter. And then when he arrives in in America, over time, he does uh, start a relationship with an indigenous woman. So throughout the book, I uh, try to include as much as possible um, uh, women characters. The other thing, too, is that although I am asked all the time about torture and whether or not Cabeza de Vaca mentioned it, Cabeza de Vaca also does not mention rape. And yet in this book, I do talk about uh, or I do write uh, scenes about uh, rape as well. So wherever I had an opportunity to place these women in the, in the middle of the action and to sort of um, write as truthfully as I can about what their experiences must, must have been like in a moment of conquest, then I took that opportunity. And can you touch briefly on on your choice to write the Moore's account in English? I know English is your third language, I believe, after mm-hmm. Arabic and French. Mm-hmm. What sort of process did you go through as a writer to land on English as the as the language to use? Well, uh, this this goes back to, it's just kind of a long story, but um, my earliest exposure to literature came from French. I went to a French uh, grade school. Um, and so I wrote, originally when I started writing at the age of nine, I wrote in French. And it's only after I went to college in Britain, in Great Britain, that um, that I started having to write research papers in English and uh, expressing myself every day, 24 hours a day in English. And that uh, ended up changing me in a way because I ended up looking back at some of that earlier writing and noticing in it the presence of a sort of colonial gaze that, that made me somewhat uncomfortable. Um, and then after that, I ended up doing a, a PhD at the University of Southern California, and I had to do all of these papers in English. And so I started writing nonfiction in English. Um, and then from there, I decided to try my hand at writing fiction in English. And mm. I haven't looked back. So in a way, I was getting out of the shadow of French, which was the colonial mm-hmm. power at in least, Morocco. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, well, in light, in light of um, Donald Trump's recent call to ban Muslims from the United States, you, you wrote an article in the Washington Post where you suggested a reading list for Americans who 
on a whole know very little about Islam and that you hoped would complicate their impressions. Uh, could you share some of your recommendations uh, for our sure, listeners sure. in case they've they've read the Moore's account and they're like, well, what could be the next book? Uh, well, I mentioned earlier the autobiography of Malcolm X, which I highly recommend. Uh, there is also uh, a book uh, uh, called the uh, the biography autobiography really of Omar Ibn Said, who was a, a slave who had been brought to uh, America. Um, then um, there's the Hakawati by uh, Rabi Halamuddin, I believe, and then Born Palestinian, Born Black, which is a book of poetry by uh, Suhair Hamad, um, A Map of Home by Randa Jarrar, uh, the grown-up uh, coming-of-age story uh, set in Texas and uh, the Gulf. Um, and you also included a Philip Roth book. So, I did. Which I would love to hear. T- yes. Tell us why why yes. reading Plot Against America might yes. help with yes. our view of so, Muslims. Yes. So Philip Roth, it is my contention, uh, even though he's Jewish, has written about the Muslim experience already <laughs> in the, the Plot Against America, which is a book that of alternate history. In it, it begins in the 1930s, and it basically posits... Uh, it, it basically asks you to imagine what America would have been like if Lindbergh, who was a uh, Nazi sympathizer, had run and won uh, the presidential elections. Um, so in this book, America does not go to war with the Nazis, but in fact becomes its own sort of uh, uh, totalitarian state. Um, and the story is told from the point of view uh focuses on a Jewish family and is extremely chilling in the way that when you begin the book, what you see the country a certain way. And then when you get to the end of the book, it's a completely different country. And it's all through the experiences of this one family. It is extremely uh, well rendered um, and just, just so incredibly alarming and chilling. And to me, when I see somebody like Donald Trump, who, like Lindbergh, did not have uh, political, um, had never held political office, and who, like Lindbergh, has these very sort of fascist tendencies, there's it's impossible to look at that and not wonder, well, what if? It's easy to say, well, you know, that's not going to happen. But we keep saying it's not going to happen. Meanwhile, Trump keeps rising in the polls. And so right. it really is a time to ask uh, ourselves, what is going on uh, in, in the country that 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 kind of rhetoric is is gaining ground? Well, I'm sure our listeners are as curious as I am what your next project is. <laughs> are you working on something? At the I moment? am. I am. Unfortunately, I can't really talk about it. I find that talking about a project is the quickest way to kill it. So <laughs> oh I just, no! Yes. Can you think... can you do a little faint towards that direction for us, or is that? Um, <laughs> it will be in the third person. Okay. So that that much I can tell you. All right. (laughs) Possibly from more than one voice. Okay. Well, it was a pleasure having you on Between the Covers, Layla. Thank you very much for having me. We're talking today to Layla Lalami, the author of The Moore's Account. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, Listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening. <laughs>